Good morning. My name is Pat. I'm one of the pastors here, and a huge crew is up uh, at Silver Birch Ranch enjoying family camp, and uh, Pastor Jeremy's among them, so uh, he asked me if I'd continue the sermon series through Romans, and I was happy to do that. In Romans 10, we're going to spend most of our time in verses 3 through 15, so there's a little bit before and a little bit after that we're not going to touch on uh, as much, and uh, that's all right. Um, If you would like the full uh, sermon series, we put them online, so there's um, audio that you can get, there's video as well that you can get, and I would encourage you, um, tracking through this sermon as Jeremy's been developing, it's been a great series, and uh, I think it'd be well worth your time if you've missed any of those uh, messages to just pop those in if you're in the car or doing some yard work with some earbuds in. That's a great way to to catch up and uh, really be blessed by God's Word um, while you're at it. And I am going to make sure that I set my timer because last time I didn't do that, I got in trouble, and I don't like getting in trouble. So I'm going to make sure that I put in the right time. And then my little watch will buzz at me and tell me to stop talking. Okay. So you all have a kindred spirit right here on my wrist. (laughs) When is he going to stop? His watch will tell him. All right. So in order for us, I think, to get the most out of Romans 10, what I want to start with today is talking about sin. Everybody loves talking about sin, right? Well, I guess pastors do, but the rest of us don't that much. Um, three elements to sin that I want to touch on today, and they're in your outline, and that's what we're starting with today. And so the three elements of sin, or the three parts of sin that we're going to talk about throughout the morning today, the first one is the power of sin, the second is the presence of sin, and the third is the penalty of sin. So I think we have uh, those up here. Yes, we do. All right, so the power, the presence and the penalty of sin. So in Romans 7, chapter 7, which we're only doing 9, 10, and 11, so this is not a part of Romans that we've spent time in, but if you did spend time in Romans 7, what you'd read is that the Apostle Paul is talking about the power and the presence of sin. That he loves Jesus. He loves Jesus with all of his heart, he says in Romans 7. But that has not stopped this inner drive that seems to be happening for him. He describes in Romans 7, the things that I want to do, those good things that are honorable and right, that I set my mind and my heart to, those are the things I end up often just not doing. And the very things I want to say no to, those are the things that I seem I seem drawn to, so I'm not doing what I ought, and I am doing what I ought not. And Paul describes that. That is what we would describe as the presence and the power of sin. I was reminded of this just yesterday. Um, I cleaned out my garage. Actually, it was my oldest son, Philip, who uh, needed a little bit extra money for college and said, Hey, Dad, can I take care of your hoarding problem in the garage? And I said, I'm, I'm not a hoarder. And my wife looked at me like, you said that with a straight face, right? It's news to me. I didn't know I was a hoarder. Then I saw this giant pile of junk that Philip had identified was junk. And I said, well, really? I mean, we could use, I could fix that. Someday I might need, okay, fine. So we picked it all up and we put it in the back of the trailer. 
and I hooked that trailer up to my truck yesterday, and we headed out to the dump. Anybody know where the dump is out in Whitelaw, Mount Trashmore? Yeah, that's right. So I looked online, and it said they closed at 12, and I thought, ooh, it's close, but I think I'm going to make it. And I'm flying through Whitelaw now that it's got these beautiful new roads, and I turn off on whatever that road is, and I get there with five minutes to spare. Gates are open. I drive right up on the little ramp where they measure your weight of your trailer, and the little speaker crackled in at me. I'm sorry I can't let you dump your garbage. Why? It's not 12 o'clock. I know, but we have a, a, an agreement with Franklin, a contract with Franklin. I don't know why she's talking to me about Franklin. This is Manitowoc. We have an agreement with Franklin, and we can't, I just can't let you do it. It's just two minutes. I just have like a bike and an old golf bag and stuff. Sorry, I can't let you do it. <clears throat> so that was a sad moment for me. Did a big smoky burnout in the parking lot with my trailer, left in a huff. And they, so just so you know, you can't sneak under the wire at five minutes too. They won't let you in. Um, I don't know, maybe quarter two. I'm still a little bitter, but I'm getting over it. <clears throat> so I drove back home with this garbage in my trailer, and I tried to get rid of it, but I was reminded of the power and the presence of sin because of the power and the presence of this garbage that I'm trailering around. And so then I thought, oh, I'm going to have to take my trailer off. I don't have much of a driveway. I don't have much. No, I'm just going to keep it on the truck. So I'm driving around town with this <laughs> wagon full of garbage. And if you notice today, it's here with me today. <laughs> yes, it is. It's on the back of my truck in the church parking lot. So you can go over and admire my garbage. <clears throat> Maybe you can take some of it. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure you won't want it. Um, anyway, power in the presence of sin. Romans 7, Paul says, this stuff is just sticking around, and it's demoralizing. And then if you follow him in Romans 8, the very first verse of chapter 8, after all this power and presence of sin stuff, he says, thanks be to God, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he uses a specific word, condemnation. What he's talking about is even though sin has, still has power, even though sin is still around, it has presence, it, I don't have to suffer the penalty of sin. And that's what Romans 8 is about. And he, Paul even says near the end of Romans 8, yeah, Christian people who love Jesus will suffer. They'll be persecuted. Uh, things will be taken away from them unjustly. They'll be hurt physically by hostile people. Uh, all of those things will happen, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you, and it doesn't mean that you're suffering under the penalty of sin. So the penalty of sin is eternal separation from God. The penalty of sin is that your life should be required of you because you have chosen to walk away from what God has demonstrated is good, and that, that is through his character. And that is sort of the basic definition of sin. So it's not that God does good things. It is that God is good, that the nature of his character is where we get goodness from. So he is the standard. He is the source of goodness. And then he invites people to live in alignment with his character because when we do, good things happen. We're patient. We're kind. We're generous. We're courageous. Good things come out of aligning ourselves with the heart and the character of God. But the story of the Bible is that people don't typically do that, at least not consistently. 
we go our own way. And going our own way and moving outside of that band of goodness that is God's character, when we move outside of that, that's what sin is. It's moving in a direction that's different than the character of God. And so when we move in a different direction that violates the character of God, we are responsible for our choices. And one of the consequences is that now sin is part of our story. Sin has attached itself to our choices. And the moral guilt and debt of that is that we now owe God the consequence of those moral choices. And that's the penalty of sin. That's why we have an instrument of Roman torture and execution hanging in our church sanctuaries. Because that speaks of the payment for the penalty of sin. That's God's rescue plan, is to rescue us from the penalty of sin. So these three concepts, the power, the presence, the penalty of sin, these are things we're going to need to keep in mind as we get into Romans 10. Paul talks about both of, or all three of these things in Romans 7 and 8, and then he reprises them um, in a great way in Romans 10. All right, so we're going to look at uh, verse 3 of chapter 10, and I'm going to turn there uh, so that you guys can follow along with me. So there we go. We're going to start in verse 3. If you have a copy of God's Word, feel free to open up with us. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, um, hopefully you'll find one in the chair in front of you. You can certainly use that. If you don't have a copy of God's Word at home, uh, we would love for you to have that. We think it's really important for everyone to have their own copy of God's Word so that you can get into that at any time. But let's look at verse 3, and we're going to look, th- look at verses 3, 4, and 5 to start out this part of the message. And this is under heading number 2, the heart of faith. The heart of faith. The blank there is heart. What we want to speak about here is what, is what is going on on the inside when it comes to faith that rescues. Because when people are touched by the power of Jesus, their lives really do actually change. When people are touched by the power of Jesus, their lives really do change. Let's look at how that happens in verses 3, 4, and 5. Chapter 10, here we go. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Who is the they here? They don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Well, the they that he is talking about there are his people, the Jewish people. Last week, Jeremy was talking about those people, the Jewish people. Paul has a burden for them. In fact, in chapters 7 and 8, he's kind of talking about himself. He's talking about the Roman church, which is, by and large, non-Jewish. They're Gentile people, and in the Jewish kind of world view, there's Jews, God's chosen people, and then there's everybody else, and those are all Gentiles. So you and I would be, unless we're ethnic Jews, you and I would be considered Gentiles, one of those Paul talks in the next chapter, which we won't get to, he describes Gentiles as wild olive branches that have been grafted in to God's plan, those who believe in Jesus Christ, and that we're we're replacing some of the natural branches that have been cultivated and are supposed to be there, and that is unbelieving Israel. But that, that is Paul's heart, is for his people. 
And what he says here in verse 3 is, it's my people who don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. And that's a supreme irony because it's his people, the Jewish people, who got God's special revelation. They got the Bible, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. They got the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They got the promises of God, Mount Sinai. That's his people got all of that. Not the rest of the world, not the Gentiles, not the Persians, not the Assyrians, not the Hittites, not the Egyptians, not all of these people. They didn't get it. Just the Jewish people got this special revelation of God. And it's these people, the only people on the planet, who don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. How is that even possible? Paul goes on. Let's look at the next sentence. Refusing. Now there's a choice word. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. There's a lot packed into verse 4. So his people are refusing to accept God's way. Well, God's way has a name. It's the name of Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 4. Let's look. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. So let's just read verse 4 again. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. So what we have here is this setup of moral effort versus faith. Moral effort versus faith. That's what's being set up as this contrary approach to how to be right with God. And Israel's model is that the law is not a means to an end. The law is an end in and of itself. There is no other purpose for the law than to exist as that guidepost of moral choice-making to which we all must aspire. And so Israel's model is work harder. Paul talks about that in chapter 9, verse 30. Let's just look at that. I'll scroll up here. And let's find verse 30. Here we go. What does this all mean? Even though, we're in chapter 9, by the way, verse 30. Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. And he's talking about the prophesied rock in Jerusalem that will become a stumbling block for the nation. And then later on, that stumbling block, even in Isaiah, one of the places where the prophecy of the rock that causes this stumbling in Israel, that rock is given a personal pronoun, him. And Paul identifies that it's Jesus Christ that is the stumbling stone placed in Jerusalem. And he goes back to that in Romans 10. 
So if we go back to verse 4, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. So Christ fills all the moral requirements of the law. In Christ is where all of that moral perfectness is found. And how does one access and benefit from that moral perfection of Jesus Christ? How does one resolve the penalty of sin before God? Well, it is, as Paul says, believing in Jesus Christ. And the Jewish people, Paul says, my brethren, have rejected God's way. They rejected the Messiah. They do not believe in Jesus Christ. They don't think he's the rescuer. And Paul asserts that's the, the very stumbling that was prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus Christ ever came. But Gentiles weren't set up to stumble on that particular point. And Gentiles are made right with God even though they were not the beneficiaries of God's law and special revelation. But hearing about Jesus Christ, they can believe. And when they believe in him, what does verse 4 remind us? They are then made right with God. That's describing the penalty phase of sin, that the condemnation for sin is taken care of. Verse 5, Paul goes on. For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all its commands. So you've got to be perfect. And the Jewish people, Paul says, they, they believe that if you just work harder, just work harder, choose more, get up and do it again, push away, hammer away, try to be better. If you fall down, just get up and keep working harder because it's that moral effort that God is looking for. It's that moral desire for perfection that God pays attention to. And they, Paul says, my my people won't let go of that idea that they just have to work harder so that God will care about them more and recognize their effort. Paul says that's not the way to get right with God, ever. It is by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. So not moral effort, simply believing the promises of God. Number three, the voice of faith. That's the next Blank on your outline, the voice of faith. Let's look at verses 6 through 10. The voice of faith. So what, what does faith say on the inside? What needs to be true of faith in the heart? It needs to believe the promises of God. What does faith have to say? What, what happens when one believes the promises of God? Let's look at verse 6. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth, and don't say who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. In fact, it says, the message is very close at hand. It's on your lips. It's in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God. And it's by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. Now, 
in contemporary evangelical Christianity, uh, one of the disappointing developments is that the word saved has become to to be used as a euphemism for being saved from the penalty of sin. That when, for instance, Christian people get together, evangelicals, and they want to know, you know, what's your story of coming to Jesus? They'll ask, how did you get saved? And that means, how did you come to trust the promises of God? How did you come to see Jesus as your Messiah, your rescuer? When is it that you chose to believe in the the promises of God? That's what they mean when they say, when did you get saved? But unfortunately, saved from hell, like the penalty of sin, is actually the minority of how that word saved is actually used in the Bible. It is used that way, but more often it's used to describe being rescued from consequences, being rescued from suffering, being rescued from judgment, temporal, like real-time, 24-hour-a-day kind of suffering and penalty and judgment. That's more often how the word saved is used. But unfortunately, for many evangelical Christians, they're so familiar with that word saved, meaning in contemporary Christianese, meaning, you know, justified or made right with God, that any time many of us read the word saved in Scripture, we automatically assume that must be talking about the penalty of sin. That must be talking about justification. That must be talking about that ultimate saving from hell. And I would just encourage all of us, that ought not be our first instinct, that when we read the word saved, that it automatically must mean that it's being saved from hell. Here, I think what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the whole package, that he saves not just from the penalty of sin. He saves from the power and the presence of sin as well. That Jesus does all of those things. That actually when people are touched by the power of Jesus, their, their whole life changes. Not just their eternal life, not just their spiritual life. Their actual temporal, real life changes too. That Jesus wants to make an impact in not just the power and presence of sin, not just the penalty of sin. He wants to make the whole impact. And that's what Paul's saying in Romans 9 and 10, all the way through. And he clarifies How is one made right with God? Moral effort or belief? Faith in the promises of God. It's faith. It's belief. He says it right here in verse 10. For it's by believing in your heart that what? You are made right with God. And it's with confessing with your mouth that you are saved, rescued, delivered. So there we have it. The the penalty and the power and the presence all wrapped up in one verse. Paul uses the Old Testament because that's his authoritative reference point. He doesn't have a New Testament. He's writing the New Testament. The the standard of record that he's referring to is the Old Testament. And they didn't have chapter and verse then. In fact, in the New Testament, chapter and verses weren't added until centuries after the documents were written. So the chapters and verses aren't inspired, as you've probably heard before. It's just one long-running letter, just like the Old Testament. And so Paul here is actually throwing in portions of the Old Testament, not by chapter and verse, just by concepts. And his audience, if they're familiar with the Old Testament, these will be ringing flags in their head as he's going. 
Where is he getting some of this from? Well, one of the places he's getting it from is Deuteronomy 30. So let's just look there real quick. Verse 10, Deuteronomy 30, verse 10. I'll start reading here. The Lord your God will delight in you if you obey his voice and keep the commands and decrees written in this book of instruction. And if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, which reminds you a little bit of the greatest commandment, doesn't it? So this is Moses. He's writing to the nation of Israel. We've got old Joshua and young generation of Israelites ready to go into the promised land. All of the old Israelites, their parents, they died in the wilderness 40 years. If you don't know the story, it's interesting and depressing at the same time. You should read it. So that's an exodus. So this is a restatement. That's what Deuteronomy means. It's a restatement of the law. And Moses is telling this new generation of people, here's how to relate to God. Here's what God wants. And here's what God wants to do. He wants to delight in you. He wants to bless you. And what he needs you to do is to make choices consistent with his direction. Because when that happens, great things happen. But he's not going to force you to do that. So he's calling for you to stay in step with him. Verse 11, this command that I'm giving you today, it's not too difficult for you to understand. It's not beyond your reach. It's not kept in heaven, says Moses, so distant that you must ask who will go up to heaven and bring it down since we can hear it and obey. It's not kept beyond the sea so far away that you must ask who will cross the sea to bring it to us so that we can hear it and obey it. That would be true for Gentiles, but not the Jewish people who got all of God's special messages delivered literally right to them through Moses. No, says Moses to the Israelites. This message is actually very close at hand. It's even on your lips and it's in your heart so that you can obey it. Now, listen. Today, verse 15, he says, I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. This is what's kicking around in Paul's head as he's getting his way to Romans 10, 9, and 10. This is the inspiration for what's behind his thoughts about God's work and his rescuing. So belief leads to righteousness, being saved from the penalty of sin, and when we call out on the name of the Lord, We are inviting Jesus to invade our day-to-day experience and make a difference. Jesus, will you make a difference in the wreckage of this choice that I just made, in the compromise that I just compromised? And again, Jesus, will you please make a difference? Will you please rescue me from the suffering that I'm experiencing because of my own choices? And that's what's going on here. Israel was invested with the responsibility of making their own choice. They couldn't choose their consequence unless they aligned that with their own choice to stay in step with God's spirit. So that's where Paul was inspired by and from as he's writing these words to the Romans. That's how faith speaks. That's where the heart voice comes from for faith. Jesus, rescue me from the penalty of my sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. And confession leads to deliverance. Number four, the power of faith is the line there. The power of faith. That's our next point. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. Because faith has power. 
And when people are touched by the power of Jesus, their lives change. Verse 11 reads this way, as the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him, Jesus, will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. What does is, what is, what is, uh, James tell us? You have not because you ask not. And when you do ask, you ask with motives that are duplicitous so that you can use God's benefit for your own selfish desires. So what Paul is, is referring to here is calling on the rescuing, intervening work of Jesus as Lord. Now, Jesus definitely helps get us out of wayward spots. But I would argue that because Paul is pulling some of this from Deuteronomy, the invitation is make choices that are consistent with what God has already revealed he wants in your life. This is a way to call on the name of the Lord, to make him actually Lord of the choices of your life. Not just to save you from the penalty of sin, but how about to save you from the power and the presence of sin. He is strong enough to do it. Well, Paul in verse 13 says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Where did he get that from? Well, he got that from the Old Testament, from a prophet called Joel. Let's look at that verse. Verse 32 of the prophet Joel, But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, and here's that word, saved. For some on Mount Zion in Jerusalem will escape. Just as the Lord has said, these will be among the survivors whom the Lord has called. Well, that sounds sort of ominous, doesn't it? Let's look a little bit before that to see what is in this same prophecy. Verse 28, just a little bit earlier. Then after doing all these th those things, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on servants, men and women alike. Does anybody know what apostle quoted that very verse on the day of Pentecost? In Jerusalem, 3,000 people came to trust in Christ. That was Peter. Peter pulled that very prophecy out of Joel, but he stopped right at verse 29. He didn't read the rest. And here we have Paul grabbing this same context, but he's pulling the very end of the prophecy out. What's in the middle? <laughs> A lot of scary stuff. Verses 30 and 31. And I will cause wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will become dark, and the moon will turn blood red before that great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. What's that? That's, that's the tribulation. That's the special judgment of God poured out on the planet after having the testimony of however many thousands of years about God's rescue plan and having the world harden its heart generation after generation, century after century, millennium after millennium, until finally God says enough. 
The constant witness is enough. <clears throat> now it's time to take responsibility for the choices that you have. And out pours God's wrath on the planet. And if you want to read the book of Revelation, I would argue that that's a description. Daniel's prophecy is a description of the, the day, the great and terrible day of the Lord. And it's not a 24-hour day, unfortunately. As we learn from Daniel and Revelation, it's probably more like seven years, three and a half and three and a half. And it is an unparalleled time of judgment and suffering on the planet directly because of God's consequential wrath on people. Well, that hasn't happened yet. If, you, if you're not sure, because awful things have happened, just read Revelation, Daniel, uh, even Joel. Uh, these things haven't yet actually happened. It hasn't gotten that bad yet. But it will. But what's interesting is Peter pulls the part before that. And he suggests, I think, this part is yet to come. And then Paul pulls the bottom part, which is, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For some on Mount Zion and Jerusalem will escape, just as the Lord has said. These will be among the survivors whom the Lord has called. This is about being rescued from the power and the presence of sin, the consequences of judgment, being saved from the way in which sin and its consequences wreck life. Call out, Jesus, save me. If you're in an addiction, if you're in a habitual sin pattern, the invitation is allow Jesus to be the Lord of your choices. Call out to him. Invite him to take control of the choice-making mechanisms of your life. Humble and submit yourself to him because he will rescue. Jesus has already won the victory. We don't have to work hard. That's Paul's whole point. Working harder, that was Paul's people's plan. We got to just work harder. Just put your shoulder down and push harder. Be better. Or you... Choose to believe the promises of God in which Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's expectations and he has the power not just to rescue you from hell but to rescue you from the power and the presence of sin. This is the invitation that Jesus wants to make in your life because when people are touched by the power of Jesus, their lives change. Well, lastly, the message of faith. The message of faith. And faith does have a message. It has something to tell. Let's look at verse 14. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? You have to actually have submitted yourself to the truth claims of the Bible. You have to actually believe that Jesus is who he said he is to rely on the power that he offers to deliver you from judgment, consequences, and pain. The pain of our choices. So how can you call on Jesus unless you've actually first believed in him? And how can you even believe in him if you've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. Faith does have a message. Once you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, once you have committed yourself to the power of God in your life through your belief in Jesus Christ, your life changes. This 
room is filled with people whose lives have changed because of the power of Jesus Christ. But you're not the end of God's plan, right? God's plan goes way beyond just this room. You are all worth it to him. Every one of you was worth it to him. But his plan is much bigger than just this room. How blessed are the feet of the messengers who bring that good news to others who haven't heard about the love of Jesus Christ, the power of deliverance of Jesus Christ. On December 31st of 2017, you know, seven months ago, whatever it was, eight months ago, um, I gave a message in which I challenged all of us to prayerfully consider praying for just one person throughout this whole calendar year. Some of you may have been here for that message. I handed out little stickers, looked like kind of a bullseye, and it asked the question, who is your one? And I invited you, just pray for this one person. Could be a family member, could be a friend, co-worker, whatever. Just find this one person in your heart to be praying for. And when you pray for that one person, pray that God would draw that person to himself through creation, what they see, through a song, that they might hear, through a conversation they might have, even through suffering in their life, that God would use those things to draw that person to themselves. But my challenge to the audience was try to avoid being that person who intervenes in that person's life. Like, try to avoid being the person who's going to bring the message of God to them. Step back and pray that someone else is used, not you to help that person get drawn to the Lord. I want to reprise that invitation, and I've printed out more stickers, little Who Is Your One sticker. If you never got one of those, I want to encourage you to grab it and stick it somewhere where you'll see it every day. It's probably illegal to put it on your rearview mirror, but you can put it on your dash, or you could put it on your bedroom mirror or your bathroom mirror. You could stick it somewhere, in your kitchen above your sink on the window, somewhere, so that when your eyes go past it, you'll remember, oh, that's right. Lord, would you please draw Jill to yourself? Would you please help her see you in creation today? If she's suffering in any way, would you please allow her to be drawn to you through her pain? But here, in light of what we're studying today, the reason why I'm bringing this back is because I'd like you to put it into another gear. And that is, would you now ask that the Lord would specifically bring a messenger into their life to share with them the gospel, the good news? Would you begin praying, Lord, could you bring somebody who will actually explain to them your plan of salvation? Could you bring someone in their life who will share the gospel with them? So now we've got four months left in the year. I'm going to invite you, with that one, start praying, 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 praying. Not that you're the messenger, that God sends a messenger, because it is blessed. Now, it is blessed to bring the gospel. You're praying for someone, that someone would be put in their lives. Here's the scary thing. Because we're a small community, um, it's possible that you know that one person that someone else is praying for, <laughs> right? So follow me here. Here we are, we're praying, Lord, I'm not going to do it, but I want you to pray to bring the gospel through someone else to my friend Jill. And you know what? Jill went to school with her. <laughs> and they still have coffee together once a month. And you don't know that. 
but you're praying for Jill. And Jill's sitting here this morning. I mean, Jill's friend is sitting here this morning. How blessed is it when you're the feet that are bringing the good news to somebody else? So what I'm telling you is someone in this building is probably praying, and they may even be praying that the Lord's Spirit would move you to share, not with your one, but with someone else. So opening the eyes of your heart to the need of humanity outside of this room, that God loves people, but they can't trust in someone they don't know about. They can't trust in Jesus and his power if they haven't heard about it. Has your life changed because of the power of Jesus? Has that happened? If that's happened, then you have a story to tell. Then faith has a message through you. Jesus made a difference in my life. He's changed me. You can share that story with someone else. So my hope is that you would take that seriously, take that little sticker, and just begin to pray. Pray, pray, pray. Lord, send someone with the gospel to this one. Join me, please. Father, as we step into this segment of the morning where we're focused on the price you paid for us, we want to say thank you. It is a way in which we can worship you that with both joy and a somberness to understand the cost and yet why you set us free, why you wanted to make a difference in our lives. So I pray as we leave this morning that you'd help us to stay in step with your spirit, help us to leave with this name, this person that you know and love and have died for, this person that we are also longing them to be free. Lord, I pray that that person would just be with us in our hearts and that we just continue to pray for them. In Jesus' name. Amen.